We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Don Palumbo, that felt serious. It was very serious Let because it, it is Whoa. serious. It is. Yeah. So, he, wow. Wow. Sorry. Is this mine or do I do this one? You can do this one. I can do this one? You can do this one. Well, big thanks to everyone yeah. for being here with us tonight. We're coming at you live from uh, the Luft in Bismarck, North Dakota. We totally love this establishment. Previously, we've been at the Speakeasy. Thank you also to everyone who takes the time out of their very busy lives to jump onto iTunes or podcast and drop uh, or Spotify and drop a review for our podcast, though it really helps us get recognition and further our reach out there. So if you're a fan and you want there to be more fans like we do, you just jump on there, you give us a quick review. We really appreciate it. So Don, I'm a little curious. What are people saying about Midwest murder? Well, WJAR Watcher. Five stars. Midwest Murder gets it right. In-depth, interesting, enlightening, and entertaining. One of my new faves. Asterisk. My only concern is the host talks so fast. I find myself having to rewind repeatedly to hear exactly what's been said, and that's so very true. And then as soon as I started reading that, I was like, slow down. And then I didn't, and I kept talking really fast. It's very true. I I wonder if WJR, WJR Watcher meant to say... One of those hosts talks so <laughs> fast. I I feel like I was unfairly grouped into you might this have been. one you here. Might have been. Guilt Just by association. Guilty, guilty by association. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely. But I guess we, I'm an accomplice. I'm a, I'm an accomplice here. You are, but yep. we uh, we definitely appreciate it. And and you know we love the honesty. That's that's awesome. So baka buns. Baka buns. Baka buns. I'm gonna go with that. Three stars, too much detail, not victim-centered. First, I want to say I enjoy this podcast and this review based off the first four episodes. I am from South Dakota and am familiar with the areas they base much of their show around. The hosts are excellent to listen to, and they know their research and area well. I like the content, especially because many of these cases haven't been told. The reason I am struggling with giving them three stars is that while I like it, I'm not sure if I'm going to continue with it. I do understand the content warning and that they don't hold back from the gruesome details. But at the same time, they give little background into the victims' lives, like many other true crime podcasts do. I plan on giving a few more episodes a listen, especially newer ones, and if they get more victim-centered, I will come and change my review. It's a nice, honest review. It is a nice, honest review. Yeah. And I, you know, I think my, the reason why I picked this one is because, you know, we truly respect the victims and their families so very much. And, you know, a lot of times, in a lot of cases, we really can't go into the details of the victims just because there, there isn't a lot of information out there, just with certain cases, you know, so it, it is a, it is a tough one. And, uh, you know, I appreciate the, the honest feedback for sure. You know, as far as the gruesome details, it's, it's in there. It's and if it's okay if it's not your cup of tea, but it's all right. Well, it, we promise that what you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, right. and right. sometimes it gets too dark for people. And, and, and I that's think, okay. Sometimes con- it gets too dark for me. Conversely, there's a lot of excellent true crime podcasts that have bigger time, more budget. They simply function differently than we do. They dive sure. into speaking with the victims' families and people who are associated with it. I have a lot of respect for that. Absolutely, it's not what yeah. we are set out to do. It's not what we're. Our time is not capable of doing that. At this point, we're not able that. to do that. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, we, we, we do everything with respect. Uh, but yeah, the, the content warning is there. It's a well-written review, though. I appreciate it. it. Yeah. And actually, the, the grammar was impeccable. Yeah. I was very impressed. You can very also good. buy us a hot dish now at www.buymeacoffee forward slash Midwest Murder. It's kind of like a tipping service. If you ever just feel like, man, Don and Jonah do a hell of a job. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Midwest Murder. That helps us pay for things like case files and and helps us get our research done. Sometimes it even pays for a, a hotel when we get stranded seeking out those case files. So you never know. If you just feel like, hey, that was awesome and I enjoyed it. I want to buy those guys a beer or a hot dish or a, a fancy coffee. You can do it at buymeacoffee.com forward slash Midwest Murder. Yes. Now, I also, we have something really important here to share with all of you in, in, in that we want you to join us because Don and I are on a sacred quest. That's right. We're on a sacred quest to help make the world 
a better place for everyone who has to handle balls. We, along with our sponsors at Manscaped, are here to save your balls this year and make your 2022 the cleanest and sexiest ever. Four million men worldwide trust Manscaped, and you can start your ball-saving journey today with our exclusive offer. Using promo code MidwestMurder at Manscaped.com, you'll get 20% off plus free shipping. Your balls will thank you. So will anybody who has to handle them. And if you don't like to talk about balls, don't like to handle balls, don't have balls, that's okay too, because they also have some other awesome products. The Weed um, Whacker? The Weed Whacker. That is, that's one of my favorites, actually. It's an electric you know. nose hair trimmer. Also Ear works hair. on the ears. Yep. And pretty it's impeccable pretty little device that it you is. can save. You can get 20% off that. Mm-hmm. Midwest Murder, manscaped.com. They've got body wash. They have really comfortable boxers. And I, I, I'm telling you, man, just invest in a nice $20, $30 pair of boxers once. You'll, you'll, you'll thank Manscaped. And your balls will thank you. And you can get 20% off using promo code Midwest Murder. And free shipping. And free shipping. Let's not forget. At manscaped.com again, deal. get 20% off and free shipping with the code Midwest Murder at manscaped.com. It's a new year. It's a new you. Ah, don't ever And there's say no that pubes in 2022. I... I hate the phrase new year, new you. Like, well, I hate yeah, it. Don't yeah. say it. Don't say well, it. Well, it, 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 it's it, like, it, it's, you know, it's right up there with boys will be boys for me. I hate oh. it. Hate it. All right. Anyway. We're cutting that one out. That's for another one. All right. Anyway. Today's story, we're heading back to 2006, and it was a dark start to the year when a dozen miners in Sago, West Virginia, died from a mine collapse. In a tragic miscommunication, families were told the men had survived, only to find out three hours later there were no survivors. The transatlantic terrorist plot was thwarted, by British and Pakistani authorities preventing the mid-air bombing of more than a dozen flights. The plot was to mix a gel substance with a sports drink to make a potent explosive that could be ignited with a cell phone or MP3 player. Liquids were subsequently banned on planes. John Mark Carr was arrested in Thailand in connection with the murder of... Don, do you know who? little trivia question for you. Don't put me on the spot. I, well, I just it's, it's, it's a fair question, but no... It's okay. Jean Benet Ramsey. Oh, yes. Her, I thought you, I thought, sorry, I was her trying to set you up it, for but that. Yeah, it's fine. Her brother did it. Yes. Well, and tested. DNA tests eventually failed to link him to the case. That's international, because her brother did it. Yeah. International tensions built as Iran refused to stop its nuclear program. Also in 2006, beloved wildlife adventurer Steve Irwin died on September 4th from a stingray barb that pierced his heart. A true icon who died doing what he loves. It was only the second recorded Stingray death since 1945. A heavily armed truck driver. Hang on, hang on. We we were actually talking about that on the way from Dickinson to Bismarck today. And it was, who can say, well, nobody can say if they're dead, but who can say that they are truly doing what they loved and, you know, died doing what they loved. You know, died died doing what they loved. you You don't hear it that very often. Yeah. A heavily armed truck driver barricaded himself in a one-room Amish schoolhouse in Pennsylvania, killing five girls execution-style before taking his own life. The killer told his wife he had molested children 20 years ago and was dreaming about doing it again. It was the nation's third deadly school shooting in a week. In Colorado, a 53-year-old man sexually assaulted hostages before killing a 16-year-old and then himself. And a high school student in Wisconsin was suspected of killing his principal after being disciplined for carrying tobacco. 2006, New York Yankees pitcher... I didn't hear about this one. New York Yankees pitcher Corey Lytle was killed when his plane crashed into a Manhattan high-rise and burst into flames. On September 26th, 2006, Facebook opened to everyone at least 13 years old with a valid email address. Pluto was demoted and no longer considered part of our planetary solar system after a panel of 424 astronomers voted to reclassify Pluto as a dwarf planet. Bye, Pluto. Western Union sent its final telegram in 2006, and the biggest films of the year were Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, Cars, Night at the Museum, and X-Men Last Stand. Night at the Museum. It's one of my favorites. And if I may go back to Pluto, I'm no astronomer, and I would never claim to be one. It'd be super fun, but it's still a, it's still a planet. And Pluto I think, got a bum deal. And I actually think they, didn't they get upgraded again? Did that happen? Anybody remember? Did that happen? I don't think so. No? Neil deGrasse Tyson. Valley City, North Dakota, nicknamed the City of Bridges for its many bridges that cross over the Cheyenne River. 
It's home to Valley City State University, an above-average public university with an acceptance rate of 76%. It's a very typical Midwest town with a population of approximately 6,500 residents, most of whom own their home. Six bars, four churches, some chain restaurants, a couple of fast food joints, a mom-and-pop cafe highlight this city that you can drive through in about six minutes on a busy day. It's a quiet town just one hour east of North Dakota's largest city, Fargo, which is a common commute for Valley City residents seeking nightlife, shopping, and more restaurant options. It's one of those places with little to no crime where not much goes wrong. A place where people feel safe. The kind of place where most folks don't even bother to lock their door. 22-year-old Mindy Morgenstern is not one of those folks. The door to her apartment is always locked. Mindy never seemed to feel particularly safe in Valley City. She didn't much like being alone there. Although she was a lifelong resident of North Dakota, Mindy was born in Bogota, Colombia. Adopted as a baby by Larry and Eunice Morgenstern, she was raised and educated in New Salem. Mindy grew up a farm girl in rural North Dakota and never shied away from the rigors of farm labor. If there was choring to do... Mindy was always ready to help. An active high school athlete, she graduated from New Salem High School before relocating to Valley City for college where she intended on pursuing collegiate athletics before a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis derailed her. Mindy didn't let that slow her down. She stayed involved in basketball as the assistant head coach at Valley City High School. She worked both at the university as a lifeguard and at a local restaurant as a server. At Valley City State University, Mindy continued her pursuit in athletics, working toward a degree in physical education with a dream to coach basketball and a dream to pursue modeling outside of Valley City. Energetic, bubbly, full of life and beautiful, in spite of her petite five foot two frame, Mindy Morgenstern could easily become a giant in any room she walked into. One might say she attracted plenty of attention, and and not all of it was intentional or invited. In fact, sometime in late August of 2006, Mindy was approached by a strange old man driving a blue car. Walking toward her apartment, Mindy noticed the slow-moving car right away. It felt like he was staring at her. Then the vehicle stopped. The old man got out and started walking toward Mindy. She froze for a moment. He was asking for directions, but as she processed his inquiry, it struck her that he was asking for directions to the next street over. It actually freaked her out. You could damn near see the place he was asking for directions to from the very spot she was standing. Then he started coming at her more quickly, even aggressively. He raised his arm as he approached. Mindy started backing away, afraid. Suddenly, another vehicle pulled into the parking lot of the apartment complex, and the old man quickly got back into his blue car and sped off. Terrified, Mindy ran into her apartment building and into her apartment on the second floor, locking the door behind her and calling 911. She filed a report and told police, quote, he wanted to take me, but nothing ever came of it. Although one neighbor, Robert Linz, would later tell police he had seen the blue car driving slowly by the apartment complex several times. Long before this incident, when Mindy worked the closing shift at the restaurant, she always wanted her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Jordan Raynham, to be there for her. If not him, then another friend. She usually finished closing the restaurant by around 9 p.m. These scenarios didn't rule her life by any means, but it certainly contributed to her awareness and general vigilance and the consistency with being aware of her surroundings and locking her door. Between work, college, and social life, Mindy maintained a busy schedule. If she didn't have plans, she was likely making them. And if she missed your call, you'd hear back from her almost immediately. On Wednesday, September 13th, Mindy Morgenstern sprung into action early in the morning, returning the DVD Inside Man to the store. Her and Jordan Raynham rented it the previous night after she got off work. The two hung out late until just after midnight when the movie was done. Now, today was a day off, and... Mindy had every intention of meaningfully occupying that time. She called Jennifer Peters around 10.30. Mindy babysat the Peters' children for years and had become a close friend to the Peters' family. Let's get lunch and then I'll come over and hang out with you and the kids this afternoon. The plan was made. With the afternoon booked, Mindy got in touch with Danielle Holmstrom and Tony Bauman. They were going out for dinner and drinks at 6 and wanted Mindy to come with them. She called Jordan after that to loop him in on her plans. He was working in the field on his dad's farm just a few minutes north of Valley City. 
Jordan and Mindy talked every day, sometimes five to six times a day, whether through phone calls, text, or instant messaging on MSN and Yahoo. They were always in consistent contact. Although their romance had tapered off over the summer and Mindy still had feelings for her ex-boyfriend, Kyle Kusnia, she and Jordan always maintained a friendship, even when they weren't dating. Tony had to work until around 6 p.m. Her and Danielle would pick, up Mind- would pick Mindy up sometime after that. It would be just the girls for a few hours of fun and maybe some drinks. Mindy wasn't much of a drinker, but that didn't stop her from joining friends at the bar, and she was generally grateful to hang out with just the girls. Mindy wasn't overly fond of Tony's boyfriend, James Robinson, a known racist and meth user who doesn't really like anyone. Evidently, Mindy was, quote, the only black person he ever liked, and that was because she was the nicest person ever. It's also unclear whether James Robinson was able to make the distinction that Mindy wasn't black, just dark-skinned. Either way, in a community that's 90% white, her dark skin stood out to people like him. With a day full of plans made, Mindy set off to Valley City State University. She needed to hit up the library, check out a laptop, and use the internet. Standard college student stuff. She ran into one of her oldest friends, Lacey Undum at the library. The two were close ever since kindergarten when Mindy came up to Lacey, held her hand, and said, will you be my friend? Sounds like a sweet girl. Yeah, yeah. right? That's, that's a, that's a yeah. good kindergarten memory. Mm-hmm, for sure. After chatting for a few minutes, the two parted ways and said goodbye at around 12.25. I'm meeting a friend for lunch. I gotta go, Mindy told Lacey, as she left for her apartment just a few minutes walk from the university library. At 12.47 p.m., Jennifer Peters called Mindy Morgenstern to tell her she was meeting her husband for lunch instead, but she'd call Mindy as soon as that was done so she could come over afterward. Mindy missed that call. About an hour later, Jennifer called again to let Mindy know she was heading home. Mindy missed that call too. Lacey didn't know it at the time, but she was the last person Mindy Morgenstern ever said goodbye to. The last friendly face Mindy Morgenstern would ever see before her life was ruthlessly taken from this world. How hard for for Lacey to to have to go on with that and and know that, you know, I mean, you know, I can't imagine I've not I've not been in that position, you know, thankfully. And but to to be that to reflect on. that, Yeah. Yeah. And to have to live with that the rest of her life. After getting off work at 6 p.m., Tony Bauman was eager to hang out with friends. The plan was to pick up Danielle, get Mindy, and head to Jamestown. Tony called Mindy, no answer. Surprising, but maybe she's with Jennifer or hanging out with Jordan and doesn't want to come out with us now. Nonetheless, Tony and Danielle went out for a few hours, but around 8.30, 8.45, when the two returned to Valley City and Mindy still wasn't answering their phone calls, they decided to pop in at her apartment and make Mindy come out. She's home, Danielle said, pointing out Mindy's car in the parking lot of the three-floor apartment complex. Tony parked, hopped out of the vehicle, and ran in to get Mindy. Danielle called her mom while she waited. A few moments later, Danielle's entire train of thought and conversation was pierced by the most awful scream she'd ever heard. A shrieking sound of such despair and terror that Danielle couldn't think. Suddenly, Tony is running toward the car. She's screaming and crying so loud, hysterical. She's desperately trying to tell Danielle something is wrong, but the overwhelming barrage of emotions is too much. Danielle can't understand anything she's saying. Tony opened the car door and bodily ripped Danielle out of the car, managing to wail out the words, Go check on Mindy. I don't know what's wrong. It's dark out now. An immediate sense of panic permeates the air. Tony grabbed Danielle's phone out of her hand, hung it up, and dialed 911. She's sobbing. The words are shaking from her mouth. She can't clearly communicate to the dispatcher. Danielle takes the phone. Tony is hysterical, screaming. There's something wrapped around her neck. Lights are popping on in the apartment complex. The screaming and hysteria is spine-chilling. A big, bald, tattooed dude walks out and asks, Why are you being so loud? Danielle says, I don't know what's going on. I think something is wrong with my friend. Can you please come upstairs with me to check on her? She didn't know Robert Lenz, the bald man who stood before her when she asked him, can you go in first? I'm scared. Oh, my gosh. To see, to, to come upon that scene, you know, and, and um, 
Well, and you don't no, even you know, know Danielle you, doesn't even you know what's going on yet. Right. It's just your friend you just is know that something is is wrong, clearly wrong. As Robert Lynn's led her through the doorway into the apartment complex, the entire place reeked. My God, it smells like pine saw in here, Danielle said, as Robert led her to Mindy's second floor apartment. The two walked upstairs. The door to Mindy's apartment was slightly ajar. Robert Lynn's nudged the door open, careful not to touch the handle. Just a few feet inside the door lay the motionless body of her friend, Mindy Morgenstern. Danielle was completely horrified by the sight, backing out immediately in shock and disbelief. This can't be real. Robert Lenz checked for a pulse. Mindy's arm was outstretched. He was light with his touch and contact. Backing out of the apartment, he looked at Danielle and said, I'm sorry, sweetie, but your friend is gone. And so he was he was just a neighbor, correct? Yeah, he, was yeah, he came out the, from the screaming. Like it, it, was it, so, it woke it was up so his family. Sure. Yeah, there was... Yeah. And really, there's nothing that can prepare a person for such an awful moment. Crying and stunned, Danielle slowly made her way out of the complex, away from the stench of pine saw and the terrible sight of her murdered friend. Wow. Investigators from Valley City PD and North Dakota BCI were on scene quickly, and news of Mindy's murder traveled fast through town. It was around 9 p.m. when Jordan Raynham was told the news from his father. Jordan never heard back from Mindy that day after speaking to her in the morning. He was tired after a long day of work and in bed when his father called him from downstairs to tell him Mindy was dead. Well, and, and they, I mean, you said they talked, what, five, six times five a day? Five to six times I mean, a day, just not this day. And, and so to not hear from her, I'm sure was... Yeah. Probably weird, even though it was a busy day for him. He left home for the scene immediately. His mind was racing with thoughts of who could have done this, thinking of everyone and anyone who ever looked cross-eyed at Mindy. He wanted to do everything in his power to help the police. Jordan was also keenly aware that in these situations, police always look at the boyfriend. Special Agent Mark Saylor from the North Dakota Bureau of Criminal Investigation took over as case agent for the murder of Mindy Morgenstern. He, along with Special Agent Arnie Rummel, were the chief investigators. The attack on Mindy Morgenstern was quick and brutal, happening so fast it appeared she was ambushed immediately upon entering her apartment. Her purse was still strung over her shoulder, her cell phone lying just a few inches from her hand by her left leg. The force of the attack had yanked her out of her flip-flops. Mindy was found in a supine position with a blood-soaked white belt wrapped around her throat and a knife protruding from the left side of her neck. She had been strangled with such violent intensity the pressure caused her lips to hemorrhage and likely gave her brain damage due to the disruption of blood flow. Her throat was sliced open twice with two different kitchen knives. It was done with enough force applied on the knife The knife handles broke. It's possible the attacker wanted to behead her. The leftmost cut penetrated her jugular. Her face was discolored and damaged from chemical burns. Whoever did this to Mindy finished the dastardly act by pouring pine saw all over Mindy's face. It was even pooled in her belly button. Bruising on the top of her head as well as around her knees and on her legs indicate there was a brief struggle and that she likely suffered blunt force trauma to the head. The pine saw bottle was shoved underneath her right arm, her keepsake silver chain with the cross necklace broken beside her, next to her sunglasses. Mindy was laying on her back, likely unconscious when her throat was cut. This is determined by the blood pooling around on the back of the shirt on the floor underneath her body and not really any blood on the front of her shirt. A bloody blue shirt was also found with a knife handle near her corpse just a few feet from her body. Okay, I'm calling for a timeout. That's a lot. That's that's a lot. It's I- it is a terrible, terrible, terrible scene of violence. So and it's quick from all looks of it. So at this point she when she was walking into her house, into her apartment, she wasn't aware that her friend was was bailing on lunch. No, because she had missed no, that call. Correct. So, that call came at 1247. So she was likely just running home quick because they were supposed to have lunch at like, what? Somewhere, one? In, I mean, somewhere in town. Yeah. Right. They, but, yep, like, yep, but like lunchtime. shortly, yep. you know, so shortly after she left the library. So she probably popped home quick and then was going to go on her way to lunch. Yeah. And, and before the attack. And something, 
someone. Someone. There was also some wonder why there wasn't any blood splatter from the throat wound. And there's a few reasons for this. The difference in cutting the jugular vein and the carotid artery. The jugular is a low-pressure blood vessel. Blood doesn't spurt out or fly from it. It oozes, and it's called venous bleeding. Whereas with the carotid artery, it's a high-pressure blood vessel, which leads to spattering. Additionally, because she was strangled first, the blood flow was already stopped. She was likely dead or near the brink of death when the attacker cut her throat. Investigators worked quickly to develop leads. Mindy's body was immediately protected for evidence. Her hands and feet were bagged. A white cloth was placed over her body and then brought to the medical examiner to process for evidence. Agent Rummel knew it was important to get this done quickly. Time was of the essence if they were to find anything that might help them find her killer. More than 100 pieces of evidence were taken from Mindy's apartment. There were hairs collected on the scene, a gray human hair from the top of the refrigerator, a hair that was in a pool of blood, and a hair in the left-hand palm, excuse me, in the right-hand palm of Mindy Morgenstern. A palm print was also found on a ceramic crock used to store money. There were fingerprints on the knife handles, rubber gloves that might have been used in the commission of the murder, plenty of trace evidence. A team of police and agents led by North Dakota BCI wasted no time in interviewing neighbors at the apartment complex gathering information from Mindy's friends and family while waiting on lab results, fingerprints, DNA, anything that might lead them to Mindy's killer. Agents worked hard to develop a timeline. Although they couldn't medically determine Mindy's time of death, they could put together several key moments in the timeline of her death. The last time anyone saw Mindy, Lacey Undum, at Valley City University Library was around 1225, and Mindy's first missed phone call at 12.47 p.m. And the first time anyone in the building noticed the overpowering smell of pine saw was somewhere around 1.30 or 2 p.m. based on the recollection of Nicole Thorson, the stepdaughter of Robert Linz. She remembers coming out for a cigarette and then thinking, holy crap, the cleaning lady must have been here. She did not notice the smell in the morning before lunch. She also noted to investigators seeing an older man in a flannel carrying a plastic bag walking in behind her. She didn't see his face and couldn't say with certainty if she saw him earlier in the day or after lunch. Mindy's apartment showed no signs of forced entry and nothing was stolen. There was no money taken. There were also photos spread across her table, pictures of Mindy and her friends from a little summer trip they'd taken to the cabin of Rod Kusnia, the father of Mindy's longtime ex-boyfriend, Kyle Kusnia. Additional trace evidence included a number of fingerprints. A total of seven prints of value were found from the items received by the crime lab. So, and, and they pointed out, when these things happen, they don't fingerprint the entire crime scene. They take fingerprints from spots where, that are believed to be pertinent to the case. And when they ran these particular prints through the North Dakota crime system, that fingerprint run is only limited to a three-state area. Furthermore, for and maybe some folks have heard this, but it's not like in CSI or something where you run a fingerprint and then you catch a you catch a match and somebody's face pops up, and so they actually well, spend, not much is like CSI, it's right? Made up. Right. It, well, it's it's funny because they they point that out specifically in this case when they get grilled on the stand about fingerprints and why didn't it work? Why wasn't it more efficient? And it got really complex. And, and ultimately, in, in the ones that were close, it, it comes down to a human matching the fingerprints against potential matches. It, it, it's not so succinct that technology could just do it. Rod Kusnia, the father of Mindy's ex-boyfriend, Kyle, quickly became a person of interest. According to Mindy's friends, he frequently called her, sometimes late at night, and Mindy occasionally met with him. He took her out and sometimes gave her money. A few days prior, on September 11th, she met Rod in Mayville for lunch. He gave Mindy a card with $100 in it, and it was signed, Love, Coos. Mindy's friends thought it was a little strange that the father of her ex-boyfriend was in such regular contact with her. It was even rumored that Rod's wife didn't like Mindy and that Rod was a racist who intentionally gave his children names that led to their initials being KKK. Okay, but what's the relevance there? I mean, if if he clearly, you know, loves her as a daughter or whatever, you know, or was close with her, I mean... 
people and their rumors, whatever. And what about the strange gray-haired old man in the blue car who Mindy claimed wanted to, quote, take her just a few weeks prior? Investigators tracked down a number of potential old guys with blue cars, but none of them could be connected to Mindy's murder or the events of that day. Based on what they could learn from Mindy's friends, Mindy always locked her apartment, and the only person with a key was her quote-unquote boyfriend, Jordan Raynham. Jordan first began dating Mindy in March of 2005, about five or six months after they met. Jordan knew going into the relationship that Mindy still had feelings for her ex, Kyle Kusnia. At some point, possibly when they were romantically involved, Mindy learned Kyle was engaged. She went to his house in Fargo and sat outside crying when he wouldn't answer the door or speak with her. The romance between Jordan and Mindy faded sometime in February of 2006, but they stayed close friends in spite of that. Jordan was with Mindy the night before she was murdered. He left at 12.39 a.m. and remembers the exact time because he looked at the microwave, which was next to the garbage, where he threw his soda away before leaving. He also noted a stack of photos on the table from her summer trip to the Kusnias, but they weren't spread across the table. Mindy called Jordan moments after he left that night. I lost my bracelet. It must have slipped off my wrist somewhere. Can you look for it in your car? The morning of Mindy's murder, Jordan dropped a motorcycle off at a local garage. His mother picked him up and brought him back to the farm. Afterward, he took over his dad's tractor and chisel plow and went to work in the field. His dad took the truck. Jordan drove out there, leaving Jordan with only a tractor and no real transportation while working in the field. Jordan spoke with Mindy around 10.45 the day of her murder. She was making plans to go to hang out with Jennifer Peters and another friend from Fargo might be coming to town. Mindy told Jordan she'd call him. Jordan worked until 7. He ate and showered and went to bed at around 8.30 without hearing from Mindy or calling her himself. At 9 p.m., his father Bruce informed him of the murder. Jordan's suspicions were on Rod Kusnia, the alleged racist father of Mindy's ex-boyfriend Kyle. He thought it was weird that he kept calling Mindy and bothering her. And what about James Robinson? Was it possible that he was angry about Mindy suggesting Tony shouldn't date him? Mindy was defaced with pine saw. Could this be a hate crime? Hope Olson, director of the laboratory at the North Dakota State Crime Lab, verified the scrapings and fingernails of Mindy Morgenstern contained biological material. It was one of the first things tested at the crime lab. A small amount of debris was scraped from beneath her nails and tested with the fingernails. The results showed two full profiles of DNA, one of them belonging to Mindy Morgenstern. The other, maybe it was her killer. BCI had no leads at this time. Hope Olson contacted Arnie Rummel and told him she believed it was likely the deceased had scratched her assailant. Reddish-brown areas were found beneath her nails through microscopic examination. She submitted the other DNA, the foreign DNA, to the statewide database. It would take another day or two before the results came back. Also, the sexual assault kit came back negative, dispelling the potential of this being a sexually motivated murder, or at the very least she was not raped before she was murdered. Robert Linz was noted as having scratches on his hands. He's the tattooed neighbor who discovered Mindy's body with Danielle, but Robert Linz worked at a steel factory. His hands were commonly pretty beat up. He also agreed to give a DNA sample. Jordan Raynham also offered the name of Kenny Jones, a man who Mindy met in Bismarck over the summer. Kenny Jones was a basketball player at an Arkansas college that wanted Mindy to come down and visit him. Mindy wanted to go, but not alone. According to Jordan, she asked Jordan to go down to Arkansas with her to see this guy, but he declined. Police weren't entirely convinced it wasn't Jordan. After all, he was a state wrestler and a second-degree black belt, one of the last people to see Mindy, and the only person with a key. Was it possible that he was jealous that Mindy wasn't just his? Was he upset that Mindy just wanted to be friends, that she wanted to leave when college was done, that she had aspirations of becoming a model? The investigation began collecting DNA samples from potential suspects and various leads. All in all, 21 voluntary samples were collected. Some of those names include 
Kyle Kusnia, Kurt Kusnia, Robert Linz, Jordan Raynham, and Rodney Kusnia. Then... Kyle uh, was Kyle was Kurt's brother, is that correct? Yep, yep. Then, on September 18th, a break in the case. A computer search of the North Dakota DNA database, or NDIS, was performed on the unknown DNA, and a case-to-case match was reported. The profile, which was uploaded into the National DNA Index System for search against the sex offender database, that DNA came up as a possible match, well, as a direct match, excuse me, a direct match for a rape that occurred in Fargo, North Dakota in June of 2004. According to the victim, she was raped by an unidentified black assailant. The very DNA found in Mindy Morgenstern's fingernail was matched to that unsolved case. The DNA ratio underneath the fingernails was 1 to 3, meaning the perpetrator's DNA was three times as prevalent as Mindy's. But it wasn't a lot of DNA. In fact, it was approximately 41 nanograms. But that is enough to get a profile. And just to offer a little perspective on how much DNA that is, one expert said the tip of a standard paperclip could hold 20 to 40 nanograms. So we're talking about a paperclip head of DNA that was found beneath one fingernail. Which it is, seems like almost nothing, but it's more than enough to develop a DNA okay. profile. And like a solid DNA profile, like yep. something that, would, that you could easily build. Absolutely. Okay. As the search expanded through the apartment complex, Investigators gathered a voluntary DNA sample from Maurice Mo Gibbs. Mo Gibbs worked as a jailer in Valley City at Barnes County. He and his pregnant wife, Christina, lived on the first floor of the building with their 15-month-old daughter, Tiana, the same building where Mindy was murdered. Mo and Christina were in the process of moving into the basement of her parents' home. Christina's father worked in the athletic department at Valley City State University. It was September 20th, one week to the day of Mindy Morgenstern's murder, when police asked Mo if he'd come down to the station for a follow-up. He arrived in the afternoon with his 15-month-old stepdaughter, Tiana. Investigators just wanted to ask Maurice Gibbs some questions regarding his whereabouts on the day of Mindy's disappearance. And I mean, as a, as a correctional officer, you know, he likely knows... Yeah, you know, he a like, lot he of these guys these, are familiar with Yeah, them. he knows these guys. They've probably brought people in. He's probably booked them. He's already you spoke know. with police and given mm-hmm. them DNA prior to this. Right. So Gibbs voluntarily waived his Miranda rights and sat down for an interview. Tiana was agreeably handled by one of the clerks at the station. Moe's demeanor was calm. Several of the investigators involved with this case knew him from the jail. He didn't have any problem answering questions. Maurice Gibbs worked the overnight shift at Barnes County Jail 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. the night before. Afterward, he came home, slept for a few hours until around 11, when he ran some errands and had lunch with his wife and stepdaughter. He couldn't specifically recall what errands or where they had lunch. He was moving boxes the day of Mindy's murder. He hadn't noticed anything, nor could he tell investigators what time he first noticed the smell of pine salt. The questioning got more specific. Agents bluntly asked Gibbs if he killed Mindy Morgenstern. Time and again, Maurice Gibbs told them he didn't have anything to do with it. He barely knew Mindy. She was just someone he occasionally saw in the hallway at the apartment complex. Then, he willfully offered to them that he had very briefly been in Mindy's apartment once, earlier that week, maybe a few days ago. He was coming into the complex with Tiana. He noticed Mindy was struggling to carry several baskets of laundry as well as some college books. He offered to help her. Mindy held Tiana while Mo carried the laundry baskets into her apartment. That was the extent of their interaction. I have one. I just want to say one thing. So how long, like, first of all, what's the time frame of when of when this this was like from from his questioning to this is one week after her murder so it's one week so this after is her on murder. september 20th seven days after her murder so if you are you're specifically asked what errands you were doing and where you had lunch a week ago i don't remember what i wore yesterday but if a sweet girl in my apartment building is murdered and i'm there i am going to make damn sure i remember where i had lunch sure i yeah, Already, that's fair. I'm, I'm no, it's fair. Agents observed a scratch, maybe even a gouge, on the back of Mo Gibbs' left hand. He was left-handed. Mo told them it happened a few days ago when he was moving boxes. 
Investigators continued to press Gibbs for a confession. Not once did he lose his cool. And although he couldn't remember a lot of the minute-to-minute details about his day, he was clear in his innocence. He had been, he had been moving boxes. He brought his wife a Powerade to work at around 1245 and was back to moving and caring for Tiana afterward. He briefly saw his father-in-law that afternoon around 2.30 or 3 o'clock. He came home when Mo was at the parents' house moving boxes. So he can remember he can remember her bringing his wife some Powerades at 12.45, but can't remember what errands he ran or, With her. or, or, yeah, or, or yeah, what, where he had lunch. It's a little unclear. After two and a half hours of interviewing Mo Gibbs, investigators arrested him for the murder of Mindy Morgenstern. Although he could have walked away from the interview at any time, agents never had any intention of letting Mo Gibbs leave the building. The DNA found beneath Mindy's left fingernail came back as a match to him. If Mo Gibbs was truly innocent, as he claims, he was going to have to prove it in court. Quote, you can talk until you're blue in the face, and it's not going to change my statement that I wasn't there and I didn't have anything to do with this murder. Dr. Tanya Deagle was contacted by Chief Ross the day of Moe's arrest. She was asked to do a skin evaluation to look at his body and examine any potential surface wounds that were on his body and put a timeline on how old they were. She examined both his hands and his right knee, identified a very light scratch on his right wrist, approximately 8 millimeters in length. She said the lesion on the back of his left hand looked to be between 4 and 10 days old from the date of the September 20th examination, and it was medically safe to conclude the injury on the left hand would have bled. Dr. Paul Deagle, her husband, also examined Mo Gibbs. He said the left hand abrasion measured 4 millimeters across and 8 millimeters in length and about 1.5 millimeters in depth. The doctors disagreed on whether or not a fingernail was a blunt or a sharp instrument. Following the arrest of Mo Gibbs, investigators decided now would be a good time to luminol the scene of the murder, particularly on Mindy's doorknob, the hallway area, the stairwell leading down to Mo's apartment, and finally, Mo's apartment itself. The so we're lum- talking a, a, nearly a week. Yeah. They're a little over a week. Yeah. That they, that they didn't. And I don't know what the standard I don't process either. is, you know, it, but you would think it seems that like you would waited be done. a while. Yeah. Just do the handles, do the. But uh, there they were a week later. They felt like they got a hit uh, of footprints that were detected in the carpeting of Moe's apartments. However, testing on the carpet yielded no major results or findings. They also took all of Moe's shoes. They ran a GCSM analysis on his shoes. That's a gas chromatograph mass spectrometry test, an instrument that identifies chemical compounds. No pine saw residue on any of his shoes. None of the fingerprints on the scene matched Mo Gibbs. There were two foreign profiles of DNA found on the knife handles that were not Mo's. No blood, pine saw smell, or trace evidence was found in the search of Mo Gibbs' Chevy Blazer. No blood, trace evidence, pine saw, or anything was found at the apartment of Gibbs or the residence of his in-laws. Again, no, no trace evidence on his shoes. And Mo Gibbs was excluded from the hair in Mindy's palm. In fact, Mo Gibbs was excluded from any of the hairs on the scene. Mo was bald. This murder trial became one of the most hotly contested murder cases in North Dakota history. It would challenge the boundaries of circumstantial evidence, belief in DNA transfer, internet use, instant messaging, and social media use as a way to establish timelines and or innocence. In 2006, there were still many people not familiar with MSN and Yahoo. Even MySpace was foreign to members of this court, and Facebook was just now starting to accept users worldwide. Once the arrest for Mo Gibbs was made, there was no further pursuit on any other potential leads, and the state's focus shifted to building their case against Maurice Gibbs. If I may trouble the bar for a Tropic Wonder, please. Thank you. And And a cherry Sprite, please. It's and a Shirley Temple for the lady. I know that's that's pretty much what I just asked for. I realized that I I choked. Um, I I licked more of the celery salt off the rim, and that's why I coughed. I'm like, okay, we're we're done with that. So I need something a little fizzier. In the months following the arrest of Mo Gibbs, there were several bombshells that would make it very challenging to find an objective and impartial jury. 
On October 26th, Mo Gibbs pleaded not guilty to the murder charge, and he was subsequently charged with six counts of sexual contact with female inmates from when he was working as a jailer at Barnes County, which can't be used at trial. Now, on November 13th, Mo Gibbs pleaded not guilty to a rape charge in Fargo, the rape that he was linked to from the DNA analysis. In April of 2007, Christina Gibbs, his wife, was granted an annulment of her marriage to Mo. Legislation was quickly passed in 2007 as well in response to the discovery that Gibbs, who actually passed their background check to become a jailer at Barnes County, managed to ever be hired in the first place. Gibbs had changed his name and somehow managed to slip through the cracks and get hired in spite of a past criminal record under another name. Although his DNA was underneath one of Mindy's fingernails, it was such a minuscule amount that some DNA experts believe it was enough to have occurred on a secondary transfer of DNA. There was a lot of debate about what that means. So what I'm saying in this case is I touch an item, Don, like this microphone, then you touch the same item, and you take away some of my DNA on your hand. So that's what they're talking about in regards to a secondary transfer of DNA in this case. But how could it be under my fingernails? Well, that that's it's a whole nother world right there, right? But like, well, it's, but if it's un, if it's under you can, fingernail, you can right? get. There have been studies done that a handshake can produce DNA underneath your fingernails well, if I, from if, the right person. Like if we if we shake hands and I and I happen to scratch your finger, scratch your hand as I'm pulling away. Even if away. you didn't scratch me, you could potentially get my DNA under your fingernails if I had dirty hands, if I was sweating more, or if some people scientifically are known as shedders and yeah. they just yeah. shed more DNA than others. So there are variables. Now, whether or not, you know, again, it's, it's a very, very hotly contested in this case, and we'll get into that a little bit more. The trial, the trial venue was moved from Valley City to Minot and the jury selection was closed to the public. Defense lawyers Jeff Breedall and Dennis Fisher built a strong case for Moe's innocence. Here's what they found out. And this mostly came from Christina's testimony. After running errands to the auto body body shop for a part with Moe and going to lunch at Hardy's, Moe dropped Christina off at work at around 12.15. The day of the murder, Christina texted Moe shortly after she was dropped off for work at 12.33. Quote, can you bring me something to drink? A Powerade, water, or apple juice, or Snapple strawberry kiwi? Which he did within approximately 15 minutes. Then he picked her up for supper later that day at around 5.30. They ate at the apartment. Mo made noodles. According to her, he was wearing the same clothes from when he dropped her off. There were no scratches on his body or his hand or blood, and there was no pine salt smell on him. She got off work at 8.30 that night. Christina claims Mo told her that He helped Mindy carry laundry into her apartment the day before she got murdered. And when did he tell authorities? Uh, Two to seven days, maybe a week. But to her, it was the day before. before. Angela Curry, the ex-sister-in-law of Mo Gibbs, said that Mo and Christina were in Fargo the weekend of the 15th to the 17th. And she had spent time with him there. She saw a Band-Aid on Mo's hand. A round cut. He pulled the Band-Aid up and showed it to her. It was like a pencil eraser. He openly showed her the wound on his left hand. There was no scab. It looked fresh. He told her that it happened the other day moving boxes. George Judd, his ex-father-in-law, Chrissy's dad, stopped at his house at around 3 p.m. the afternoon of Mindy's murder. He had to get a receipt and trade cars. Mo was there with Tiana, and George saw nothing out of the ordinary. Expert DNA analysts testified it's possible, though unlikely, possible the DNA was there by secondary transfer. Mo Gibbs was moving boxes that day. He's a, they argued he's a big sweaty man. He's 6'2". He's got big hands. He's got hay fever, which means watery eyes, snotty nose. He left DNA on Mindy's laundry basket and on the doorknob into the apartment, and that's where Mindy picked it up. Numerous witnesses claim Mo didn't have a scratch the day of Mindy's murder. Dr. Thomas Edwards a forensic video image analyst spent more than 100 hours working to identify scratches on the back of Mo Gibbs' hands through video footage obtained from the bank and from Barnes County Jail. The footage was from September 15th, 
two days after Mindy's murder. He says there was no scratch. Was he for the defense or the prosecution? He was for the prosecution. He believes there's no scratch, but he could not say with 100% pure certainty. 100 hours, they go through this major analysis. They look at it all in a grayscale because it's easier to identify uh, misshapes on the hands or, and the bodies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a discoloration. So they're looking for a distortion on the hand or something that, that breaks the contour. And it, so it, anyways, yeah, it was he couldn't find it. Excuse me, Dr. Thomas Edwardson. He was actually in the second case. He came in as one of the defense experts. Oh, gotcha. The, okay. There was two different video experts, and I mixed them up there. Sorry. Jason Lang, a co-worker at Barnes County Jail, says he didn't notice a scratch on Moe's hand when the two worked together on September 15th. There was an employee meeting. He didn't see it. Okay. there. The, I understand why that line of questioning is there. I get that. But we've spent pretty much two days together in the car. And I wouldn't notice on your hand if you had a scratch or not. Right. Yeah, it's, it's fair. I mean, I, they're putting a lot of weight on it. And I think it would, it would be easy a to say. A lot is made about the scratch. It, yeah. I, and if it was. Uh, I, wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't know if you had a scratch on your face. I mean, I mean but that's, that's because I'm not paying attention, right? Or just because I'm not. notice I'm that. Not, well, maybe. I mean, yeah, but I'm not super yeah. observant. But right. just a, a coworker. A coworker's not going to notice if I have a scratch on my hand. How much time do they spend at the, sure. at, 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 on their shift together? How they, much, you know, they, I mean. They also had Jason Lang review 61 hours of footage of Mo and to see how many times Mo touched his nose and see if he sneezed. He said Mo touched his face approximately 25 times and he also didn't notice a scratch on that, but he's not an expert. It he's wasn't not an expert. zoomed in. I mean, so, yeah. Leo Werner, a computer and video expert, according to his analysis of the computer of Mo Gibbs, shows activity starting at 1.07 p.m. the day of the murder and for approximately two hours afterward. There was an, there was an ignored instant message. According to his expert determination, there had to have been a person physically interacting with that computer at 1.07 p.m. and again at 1.53 p.m. And what about the unidentified hairs, the DNA found on the knives that did not belong to Gibbs? Those samples were not tested against all of the other DNA of the other 21 potential suspects. Why weren't suspects with simple verbal alibis verified against the DNA collected? Although Jordan Raynham testified that he consistently spoke to Mindy every day, five to six times a day, and had plans to go out with Mindy that night, he never called her again. He didn't call her at all that day, and he simply went home to bed without trying to contact her. The two profiles of DNA found on Mindy's right hand did not belong to Gibbs. The DNA from the left hand was 41 nanograms, again, a paperclip head of DNA, 75% of which belong to Mo Gibbs. The level of DNA transferred was minuscule and could scientifically be explained by innocent transfer. Finally, the defense argued, why wasn't the strangulation ligature tested for DNA? That was the case that the defense built. Opening arguments for the trial of Mo Gibbs began on June 27, 2007. And this trial, the first one, jurors were allowed to watch most of the Mo Gibbs interview with police from September 20th. What they didn't include in the video were the parts of the video that included officers probing him about the other suspected rapes and sexual assaults. Because that wasn't pertinent to this case, they edited those aspects out. So it was just the interview of Mo calmly, persistently denying any involvement. Prosecutors built their case around the DNA of Mo Gibbs found beneath Mindy's left-hand fingernails. State experts argued the amount of DNA discovered couldn't have happened by a simple, innocent secondary transfer, that it would have required vigorous contact. Arnie Rummel built a very detailed timeline of texts and internet activity of Mo Gibbs. He subpoenaed the MySpace, MSN, Yahoo records, as well as text and cell phone records in an effort to determine if Mo Gibbs was communicating with anyone during the estimated time of Mindy's murder. They also found he had a second cell phone under a different name that his wife didn't even know about. Through the timelines of activity on Mo Gibbs' cell phone, as well as these accounts, there is a 65-minute period of inactivity that overlaps with the time frame Mindy is believed to have been murdered. Mo's regular cell phone and internet activity was constant, even while he was at work. So one to two hours of no activity on any of his cell phone or internet chats is highly, highly uncharacteristic. Also, 
The fact that Mindy never told anyone about her encounter with Mo Gibbs and Gibbs told his wife one thing that he had helped her with the laundry the day before, but told police another that it was a few days ago, maybe a week. They cited inconsistencies in his interview and of his memory. Mo Gibbs was not clear on exactly what day he was in Mindy's apartment or the time he awoke the day of her murder. He left out small details like trading cars at Chrissy's parents' house or going to the body shop for a part. Didn't know where he went for lunch or when he smelled the pine saw. But he did remember exactly what clothes he was wearing the day of the murder and told officers right where they could find them. Did the, and obviously, I mean, I'm pretty sure I understand this or know this answer already, but obviously there was no, there were no cameras or anything in the apartment, right? So there's no way of proving that Gibbs actually helped Mindy with her laundry basket. That's just according to him. He's the only one. He's the only one that can say that. So there's actually no proof. That, and that struck me as odd because of how social Mindy Morgenstern was. Simply, if some dude in her apartment helped her carry, from what I could gather in the research, she just would have told one of her friends that in passing. It, it just it would have happened. It's not something that would have been left out in conversation. The well, and, and especially if she didn't, she didn't feel safe in her apartment, in her apartment building. She didn't feel safe at work right. alone. Right. So you'd think that if she had, if she had communication or contact with somebody in with somebody in the apartment building that she would say something. I mean, there's no guarantee. There's no guarantee, there's no, but it's, it's, it's a fair question to, to ponder. The state's computer expert asserted that most of what Leo Warner said was true. However, the state analyst claimed his timestamps were off by one hour because Leo hadn't allowed for the change in daylight savings time that occurred. What he said was activity on Mo's computer beginning at 1.07 p.m. was actually 2.07 p.m. Who's Leo Warner again? Leo Warner was the computer expert who claimed that there had to have been somebody at Mo Gibbs' computer for an extended period of time in order to interact with it. Okay, so what's From he actually... Okay, so now that I've put myself there, so so he was actually saying... So activity... He could get into the computer's database and tell that somebody pressed a button or cancels or sure. did physical things, that this is not an automatic update that happened on this computer. Somebody was physically using it. Okay. And the defense said it was at 107. The state's expert said, no, it was at 207 because you didn't do the daylight savings time. Okay. Okay. And another big point of note, during the first trial, some nut job threatened the defense attorneys, menaced them outside of their hotel, and vandalized their vehicles. Charges were filed and and a restraining order was issued against the man. The defense attorneys also received death threats. Their personal homes were regularly checked on by police. It was an intense court battle. On July 9th, each side rested their case, and it went to jury deliberation at 3.46 p.m. By July 11th, a verdict had yet to be reached. Judge Paulson closed the courtroom for a session with the defendant, the attorneys, and the jury. He asked jurors if they were deadlocked. However, majority of jurors indicated they were making progress. On July 12th at noon, Judge Paulson was given a handwritten note indicating that after more than 24 hours of deliberation, the jurors were at an impasse. The jury wasn't just deadlocked. They were actually split six to six, a very rare occurrence. The stalemate was announced by Paulson at 1.23 p.m. and the jury was dismissed with a mistrial declared. So that wow. doesn't mean he gets away for anybody who's not familiar with how I, th- I thought for a second there was like, holy shit. So he gets away, but no, it has to be unanimous one way or the other. That is the law. So in these situations, yeah, it's just saying, it's just saying that the jury can't decide. Yep. They, they cannot agree. So you get to try other. again. It's like, if then does, yeah, we, we didn't, we didn't work. We're going to try again. Judge Paulson then placed a gag order on the attorneys, sealed the documents on the case and denied requests to make the Arnie Rummel timeline public. It was an extremely controversial finish to the first trial. Again, if a decision isn't unanimous, the state can choose to re-prosecute. In this case, they did. What's all, what I also found interesting is that at that point, they're allowed to speak with the jurors in order to learn what led them to choose not guilty. It's up to them whether they choose to, to tell them, but they were allowed to speak with the jurors and say, well, what gives? Why, why'd you say not guilty? And it's the same jury that would go the second time, correct? No. They, they no. pick a different jury. They pick okay. a totally different jury. Okay. So 
A new trial was ordered, and it was initially planned in Grand Forks, but after a barrage of racially charged outbursts on a local radio show, a request to relocate the trial was granted, and the second trial of Mo Gibbs was moved to Bismarck, North Dakota. Given the massive publicity of the trials and the abundantly public information of the other charges pending against Mo Gibbs, it was going to be extremely challenging to find an impartial jury. The selection process was nothing short of tedious, and the judge, throughout the second trial, continuously admonished the jury over over following instructions. The argument over the DNA was vehement, with state experts assessing the amount of DNA could not have occurred on a secondary transfer. It was enough DNA that it had to have been vigorous contact, although it was technically possible that it could have occurred with secondary transfer, it was considered highly unlikely by the overwhelming majority of the scientific community. The how and when of the DNA was also a big issue because, of course, nobody could decidedly say how and when the DNA got there. Respectively, the expert witnesses testifying on the DNA were each on the stand for long stretches of time, some of them for several hours. Hope Olson the director of the state crime lab, I just got to say she did one hell of a job on the stand. She was on the stand for five hours in Minot. And the defense, I mean, they grilled her so hard. It was one of the most intense just battles I'd ever, ever read. Her testimony in Bismarck was just a little bit shorter. The state brought in three DNA experts from all over the country to testify. The defense could only afford one. In the second trial, the state did not present the Mo Gibbs interview video as evidence. Thus, the jury was not allowed to view the tape. Defense fervently argued against this numerous times. They wanted to play the tape, minus the other subsequent charges. From the first trial to the second, investigators slightly changed their estimated time of her murder from between 1227 and 1247 to sometime between 1227 and 3 p.m. The defense rested their case with the the following quote, the absence of motive is a circumstance tending to support the presumption of innocence and should be given such weight and credibility that you think it deserves. That was toward the end of the the defense resting. Strong argument was also made that the circumstantial evidence wasn't consistent. It was very strange the apartment wasn't luminol the night of the murder. State prosecutors also tiptoed the line of suggesting the accused, the defendant, was capable of testifying and that not doing so was a sign of guilt. Big no-no. Defense attorneys motioned for a mistrial because of the actions, and they also asked the judge to reprimand the state prosecutors for making such statements. Neither was granted during an intense back and forth outside the presence of the jury. There must have been at least a dozen or more occasions where the jury was excused so that the attorneys could argue over various aspects of this case, witness testimonies, other things of that nature, the timeline, all of it. Prosecution added further emphasis on hygiene and the fact that if Gibbs did help her carry her laundry into the apartment the day before her murder, Mindy worked later that night, closing down the restaurant, washing tables, washing her hands as a server. She was a very clean, very hygienic person. A big aspect of the defense was to suggest that because Mo Gibbs was coming in and out of the apartment moving, he's a big man with sweaty hands and hay fever, that he deposited more DNA on the doorknob to the apartment and her laundry baskets. That's how Mindy got the DNA. Defense also insinuated Jordan Raynham had plenty of opportunity to commit the crime, and the choice to not test all the DNA acquired through evidence against the DNA on the knives or on Mindy's right hand was a grave mistake. Raynham, on the stand, when discussing his abilities as a black belt and a wrestler against Mindy's petite frame, said, quote, I could kill her in seconds. To this point of my Midwest murder career, this is the most intense court battle I've researched. Hey, hang on. Wait, yep. wait, 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 wait. Yeah. Who did he, he said that on the stand? Yes. As they were talking about his capabilities and what he could have and, and what all of it, he said, he said, I am strong enough and I have skills. I did could, somebody Mindy is tiny. object to that? Like, that That's, is weird. Yeah, he said it. That was, it's a real thing that came out of his mouth when he was a state witness. Who? Uh, Thus why the defense was, the you know, pointing the that? finger at him. Like. They didn't ask, could you have killed her? You know, they were talking about 
his skill set, what he was capable of, right? Like trying to trying to lead him into that, I'm sure. I bet he feels yeah. like a dummy for saying that. Yeah, I don't know. Like it's it, it's was pretty questionable thing to say wow. when you're sitting there as a as a potential suspect, maybe. Yeah. But wow. the second trial started on October 29th and was led by amazing, amazing prosecutorial performances by State's Attorney Lee Grossman and Assistant Attorney General John Byers. Deliberations were initiated on a Friday. The jury was held over the weekend, and the jury spent all of Monday deliberating. By Tuesday morning, still no verdict was reached. Unmistakable anticipation hung in the air. Finally, on the late afternoon of Tuesday, November 20th, after 22 hours of deliberating, the jury reached a verdict. Mo Gibbs was found guilty of the murder of Mindy Morgenstern. Later that year in December, Gibbs entered guilty pleas for both the 2004 Fargo rape and the sexual abuse of six female inmates while working as a Barnes County jailer. He was given consecutive sentences of 20 and 25 years for those crimes. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole on December 17th for the murder of Mindy Morgenstern. One final blow of tragedy, Mogib's sister, who was very vocal online and in the press in defense of her brother, pleaded guilty in 2009 to attempted murder. She tried to kill her three- and four-year-old daughters and herself with vehicle exhaust. She was also illegally distributing thousands of prescription weight loss pills while working at our North Dakota military base. She was given a sentence of uh, 12 years for the attempted murders of her children and a 21-month sentence that will be served at the same time as her sentence for attempted murder. I'm, I wasn't at all surprised that this, this was a mistrial the first time around. And there was not a lot of certainty going into the second time around. There was even, it happened outside the, the evidence of the court, but one, one like a dismissed juror. So they, they, they dismiss the, the alternates. They get mm-hmm. dis- dismissed. Yep. One of them was heard saying, Oh, it doesn't look good for the, the state's attorneys as he was oh. dismissed. Somebody heard him saying that. And so it going into this, there was a lot of concern about whether or not he would get convicted, but ultimately uh, they, they, they got their case right, they got their story right, and they got the conviction. Hmm. Wow, that one was... I, that's that poor, poor girl and I... And her parents. You know, her parents... Um, her friends. It, it, it hit yeah. me really hard when I was writing this, the idea of just discovering your friend, somebody you loved like that. Right. It was really, really hard. And just thinking back to being Lacey, the last person that ever, the last friendly face Mindy ever saw. Right. Uh, the primary sources for this episode, court documents acquired through open records requests to the state of North Dakota, as well as the Bismarck Tribune, article by Samantha Stockman, Dave Kolpak from the AP, and Dave Wetzel from the AP, Niche.com, Legacy.com, the Grand Forks Herald, and the opening timeline info, from CNN.com specials, what happened in 2006, and popculturemadness.com. Again, a big shout out and thank you to the Luft, and a big thanks to our sponsor, Manscaped, where you can save 20% off and get free shipping. More than 4 million men worldwide trust Manscaped with their ball grooming efforts, and you can too when you use code MidwestMurder at Manscaped.com. Thank you. 